Hi, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 3rd of July 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Hong Kong continues to be in the news and talk around town is all about politics. At Hong Kong Stories, we try and keep politics out of our stories, unless it's a story told from an individual's point of view and about their own experiences. We want to hear how a person comes to be where they are today, about pivotal moments that changed the course of someone's life and changed who they became. This week, as we're sweltering the streets of Hong Kong, we'll be listening to a story of my own about a dangerous situation I got myself into, and then a story from John about a memorable moment in his life. Before we get to the stories, though, we want to thank our Hong Kong listeners. We need stories right now to connect and learn to listen to one another. Thanks for listening to our stories, Hong Kong. We appreciate all the support you give to us. Thanks for listening. Go out to our world listeners today as well. This week, shout outs to those listeners in Cortina d'Empezzo in Italy, Cannon, New Hampshire in the United States, and Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our next live show has a theme, Belonging, and will be live on Wednesday, July 24th at the Fringe Club. I'm hosting the show, and I'm currently busy looking for great stories for the lineup. If you have a story about belonging burning a hole in your heart, come along to a meetup and learn how to tell it in the best way that you can. Find all the information you need to get yourself to a workshop at hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our February 2019 show, which had the theme Direction Unknown. Here is my latest story. The truck drops us off at about 10 a.m. at this little village. Well, it's a couple of huts and a couple of dirt lanes. And as we climb out of the truck, the villagers all gather around us. and They smile. And, and we smile. And then they smile some more. And we smile some more. Because smiling is pretty much all we can do, because we don't speak any Lao. And they don't speak any English. The truck starts to drive off back the way it came. And we shoulder our packs and start off in the opposite direction, down this narrow dirt track into the jungle of Laos. It was 1997, and I was 22 years old. And I was backpacking around Asia. And this is the days before smartphones and Googles were a thing. So the way that I navigated around was basically with a copy of The Lonely Planet. The day before, my companions and I, Alan, who we'd met on the 24-hour bus two days before, and Peter, who we'd been traveling with for about four days, who's a tall Danish lad, and Louis, a fellow Canadian and my boyfriend, we'd walked across the border the day before from, La- from China into Laos, and we'd stayed the night in a village called Long Nom Tha. In this village, as we're sitting there in the evening, having our meal, a couple of other backpackers come up to us, because this is how you get information when you're backpacking. You sit in the next cafe and, and they, other backpackers come along and you freely exchange where to go and what to do. 
And these people had come up to us while we were having dinner, and they say, oh, we just did this amazing hike in the forest. We started off in a village called Wei Sai, which is on the Mekong River. And then we got in a truck and went down this small, narrow path in the jungle to a village about halfway. We have no idea what the name is. And then we got out of the truck, and we walked for about four hours. And it was brilliant. And we'd been traveling quite a lot in cities, you know, city to city, so we thought this was a fantastic-sounding adventure. And four hours, a manageable one. So the next morning, as the truck drives away, and we start walking, here we are. And it's hot. It's hotter than we're used to. And before long, we drunk all the water that we had with us, and I had to pull out my emergency water filter. About midday, we sit down, we eat the total of our food supply, which is one mandarin orange, a bar of chocolate, and half a packet of Oreos between the four of us. Food's heavy, so as a backpacker, you don't carry very much of it, because you're usually going from place to place where you can get it. About halfway through the afternoon, a man comes out of the jungle. He's carrying this long rifle, and he's got a string of songbirds tied around his waist. We look at him and smile. He looks at us and smiles. We smile, he smiles, and he speaks no English, and we speak no Lao. And we try and say to him, how far is it to Hui Sai? Because we must almost be there. He perks up at the, sound, at the sound of the name Hui Sai and looks directly at us and holds up three fingers. Three. Okay, three what? Three miles, three hours, three minutes? When darkness descends, it descends quickly. And we pull out our flashlights and shine around until along the side of the track we spot this kind of rough shelter. It's about one and a half by two meters, up off the ground by about half a meter, and has these four poles holding up a rough roof made out of leaves. We wade through the long grass over to this shelter and tie our flashlights to the top of the roof. And as the flashlights illuminate us, we realize that our legs from the shorts down are completely covered in leeches, which we convinced to locate, relocate by using a lighter, but now our legs are a complete bloody mess. We lay down in this shelter on our sides, because that's the only way all four of us will fit, and try and sleep through the noises of the jungle and the dark behind us. The next morning, the sun comes up with a vengeance. And we sit and we look at each other and we wonder, should we really go on? We know how far we've come, but surely Hui Sai and the Mekong River is only down the road. A four-hour hike. We decide to go on, shoulder our packs, and keep walking. The jungle's hot and sweaty. There's no breeze. It serenades us with the songs of birds and weird screeches and odd rustlings in the leaves. When we pass a stream, we take off our shoes and soak our swollen, aching feet. About midday, we reach a village. It's got rough huts, a dirt path, and absolutely no sign of the Mekong. So we go into the village, and the villagers all gather round. 
And as we're sitting there, trying to explain to them, Hui Sai, and they're looking at us and smiling, and we're looking at them and smiling and smiling and smiling and smiling and smiling. And the only thing that they recognize is the name of the village, Hui Sai. And I draw a picture of a truck, and they just laugh at me again. Until finally, this wizened old man holds up three fingers. <laughs> and we think, great. Three. Must almost be there. We look at one another and we take a vote and we decide, well, it can't be that much further. Let's keep going. We give them some Laotian kip and they give us two packets of instant noodles and a packet of biscuits. And we're ready to start off again. Shoulder our packs and off we go forward on the track. When night descends on the, third, on the second night, we've already spotted out a shelter. During the afternoon, the terrain has changed from, these roll, from the jungle into these rolling green hills with great slashes of iron-red earth. And the hut that we spied out for the second night is on stilts about a meter and a half off the ground. And it's even got walls on three sides and a cooking pot underneath with a stone fire pit. We feel a lot better after we've eaten a meal, a bit more cheerful, a bit more optimistic. Surely Huaysai can only be minutes away. We'll stay here for the night, and then tomorrow everything will work out fine. We're woken up in the middle of the night by the hut, swaying back and forth. We sit up in bed and look over the side of the shelter. There is an entire herd of buffaloes below us. Their sharp, pointy horns glint in the moonlight. And one of them is rubbing his shoulder up against the side of the hut, which is heavily overloaded with four giant people in it. We sit and think lightweight thoughts. <laughs> As we wonder to ourselves, what will happen if this hut collapses and we're trampled in the field? Will our bodies even be identifiable? <laughs> None of our families know where we are. We don't even know where we are. <laughs> we lay back and cautiously, gently fall back asleep. <laughs> and when dawn descends, or ascends on the third day, so do we. We're a sorry bunch by now. We eat a final cookie that we saved from the night before, and we shoulder our packs. We don't look good. We don't smell good. We're walking, our hair is plastered to our heads, and our faces are caked with dirt. We've got blisters on our feet, blisters on the blisters on our feet, and our shoulders are rubbed raw from our backpacks. But we keep going, because Huaysai can't be too much further. At about 5 p.m., a man walks towards us along the dirt road, smiling. He waves at us, and we wave back. And we speak to him, and he doesn't understand English. And we smile, and he smiles. And we say, Huaysai! And he up three fingers <laughs> and then he keeps walking 
and around the next bend, we spy a village of small huts and dirt roads, and on the other side, a glint from a giant body of water, the Mekong River. We are so relieved that we take our packs off and drop them where we're standing and collapse in the dirt in front of this village. We gather our strength for a few minutes before crawling the last few meters, finding shelter in the largest house where they fed us, charged us to stay for the night. When we looked at it, we had walked 130 kilometers <laughs> across a country, completely ignorant, unable to speak the language, with no map and no food. <laughs> this is a country, one of the few countries in the world that still has wild tigers and bears and rhinoceroses and 22 different species of poisonous snake. It's also a country that's famous for having over 80 million unexploded bombs buried in it. We were young, we were foolish, and we were really, really lucky. Thank you. One of the best pieces of advice given to me by my parents has been, if you can't be good, be lucky. In my life so far, I have been. And let's hope it continues, as I'm not sure I'm getting any smarter. I started telling stories up on stage by going to a workshop, and that's how you can get started too. Hong Kong Stories doesn't have a formula, but it does have a lot of experience and some very talented hosts who will guide you through the process of making your story the best it can be. Find out more at hongkongstories.com. We all need a break and a bit of comfort sometimes, and the fast-paced lifestyle in Hong Kong can be pretty stressful. But Bloom Me is ready to help you find some comfort and some pampering. Instantly book an appointment at your favorite spa or salon and get up to 30% off your booking just for using the convenience of an app. Save some valuable time and try out a new experience with Bloom Me. Thanks to Bloom Me for being a sponsor of the Hong Kong Spoken Word Festival in 2019. And now with a story from another place. And recorded live at the Fringe Club in May 2016, here is John. Well, in 1995, I was living in one of the most dangerous and crime-ridden areas of America, the South Bronx. And due to circumstances beyond my control, I was going to be homeless. So I decided, well, why not make the best out of a bad situation? And I went down to Medellin, Colombia to do work with the homeless kids down there. Now, Medellin at the time was the headquarters of the world's biggest drug cartel run by the infamous Carlos Escobar. Now, when I got down to Medellin, I was told two things. Number one was always keep your passport on you. 
because that's the only form of identification you have. If you don't have it and they stop you, they can throw, they'll throw you in jail indefinitely and nobody will know where you are or what happened to you. Number two was never speak English. The reason why was they, it's not too long after they had killed Carlo Escobar, who was a great hero to the people of Medellin, and of course, they blamed the Americans. So they said, if you speak English, they'll find out you're an American and they'll kill you. Now, what I would do is I would go out on the street and get together with the homeless kids, establish relationships with them, try to see what I can do to make their life better. And some nights what we would do is we would get a Jeep and load it up with food and drinks and clothes and about 12 or 13 people and ride around the different areas of Medellin and see what we could do. Now, I couldn't, couldn't help but be affected by some of the things that I saw. There would be seven or eight-year-old kids out on the street looking after their three- or four-year-old sibling because the family was too poor to look after them, so they just had to make their way. And the older kids, when I say older, I'm only talking about maybe seven or eight years old, had what they called their vaso de leche, which means a glass of milk. They find a bottle out on the street, and they would put glue in it, keep it in their shoulder, sniff it, because they would get high, and that would you know, take away the hunger pangs. And, you know, sometimes it would just get to me and I would just say, look, uh, give me five minutes. I'm going to go into the alley. I'm going to go around the corner. I'm going to have a cry and I'll be back. And then the military was in charge of some areas. And if one of the kids wandered into the wrong place, then they were shot and their body left on the side of the road as a warning, don't come here. And in general, that was their attitude toward the street kids was they were just so much trash. The word that they used for them meant the disposable ones. And I couldn't help but get attached to the, a few of them. And then i go around, and then maybe they weren't there anymore. Nobody could tell you where they were or what happened to them. And then one day, I'm walking by the river, and they're bringing a body out. I didn't want to know what was going on. You know, I just kept walking. So one night, it's about 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night, and I'm tired, and I want to go back to the room I'm renting in, this, in the barbershop up in the foothills. The area is called, oddly enough, Boston. So I'm going back. And as I'm walking, I see you up ahead what looks like a group of drunks staggering around. But they're too far ahead for me to get a read on who they are or what they're doing. After a couple minutes, I realize... I'm not looking at a, at a group of drunks. It's a Colombian Army patrol. And the reason why they're staggering around is that they're fully armored and carrying automatic weapons. And what they're doing is they're going along the road 
and they're trying all the doors to see if they're open. Because if they are, there's some sort of illegal activity going on. There's either gambling, prostitution, or more than likely, drug activity. Also, what they're doing is they're stopping the few cars on the road, making the occupants get out, lie down on the road while they check their papers and they search the vehicles. Now, the rear guard sees me walking. I'm the only guy out on the street. And it says to the sergeant, you know, here's this guy. So the sergeant obviously says to him, you know, keep an eye on him. So they know I'm there. If I try to run away or if I try to avoid them, they're going to come after me anyway. So the only thing I could really do is just keep walking and see what happens. Sure enough, I end up right in the middle of the patrol. Then I realize I don't have my passport. So Sergeant nudges one of the soldiers and tells him to come over and check me out. So he comes over. And he says, Adonde va? Where are you going? So in my best Spanish, I say, well, I'm going to... My room in the barber shop is past the bridge, the third bridge up by the river. And it looks at me kind of strange. You know, there seems to be several things going on at once, and I can't get a read on what's happening. And finally, he looks a little bit confused, and he says to me, De donde eres? Which means, where are you from? Great. Not only don't I have a, my passport, but now I'm going, to tell it, I'm going to tell them I'm an American. So I say, Nueva York. His face drops, his mouth gapes open, and suddenly he smiles at me. And he says the only words he knows to say in English, which is, how are you? <laughs> I say, Fine, now that I know you're not going to shoot me. <laughs> so he's kind of excited, and he goes up to the sergeant and the patrol, his friends in the patrol, and says, hey, this guy's from New York. And they look, they stop, and they look, and they come around. Sergeant comes up to me, and he asks the next question. What are you doing here? And I explained, well, I'm here with the church, and I'm doing work with the homeless children. And, well, if you're a member of a Columbia Army Patrol doing this kind of work, more than likely, you're not much higher on the social scale than the kids living out on the street. So they look at me, and they nod their heads, and they don't bother checking for any identification. So for the next few minutes... I'm walking up uh, to my apartment with a fully armed Colombian Army honor guard. <laughs> it's like, wow, you know. Finally, I get to the barber shop, and I walk over, and I said, okay, well, hey, guys, you know, this is my place. You know, thank you. And they're going around in the business, and they're like, the sergeant looks at me and says, okay. Dios te bendiga, hermano. You know, God bless you, brother. And they go their way, and I go mine. 
So now what could have been this really nasty situation turned out to be the most secure I've ever felt in my life. So thank you. Thanks for listening to today's stories brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. Thanks too go out today to all of our workshop hosts who volunteer their time and expertise to make us all better storytellers. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.